Section 13 of the Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4. The Counter-Reformation at its Height, Part 1. The period during which the movement of the Counter-Reformation arrived and maintained itself at its height may be reckoned as covering the thirteen years or thereabouts that ensued after the close of the Council of Trent in 1563. This period coincides with the main course of the great attempt of Philip II of Spain to extinguish Protestantism in Europe. During these years the few advances still made by Protestantism were more than counterbalanced by its losses elsewhere, while the Catholic reaction, on the other hand, fully developed its resources. It had now become an integral part of the ecclesiastical policy of Rome, which during far the greater portion of this period closely followed that of Spain, and never so much as contemplated a return to less direct and active courses. From Spain, then, the entire movement, as before and at the Council of Trent, so during the preceding generation, received its chief impulses. The absolutism of the new Spanish monarchy enabled the will of Philip II to reflect itself in the whole character of his government at home and of its action and influence abroad. Whether or not he had momentarily winked at Protestantism in England, in his own kingdom he was the uncompromising champion of orthodoxy. His jealousy of his royal prerogative, although it led to many troublesome differences between him and the Holy See, did not interfere with his fidelity to its interests and those of the Church. What he demanded was that even the Pope should only exercise power in Spain through and by means of him, the King. Of his European policy, which involved him in so much combative intrigue and aggressive war, the objects were no doubt largely fixed for him by the mere geographical conditions of his inheritance. But though these may have been the original causes of the chief contests of his reign, religious enthusiasm sustained the resolution of Philip in both instances, as it sped the galleons of the great armada to their doom and bound the arms of the leaguers with the Castilian red. The ecclesiastical agency on which Philip's system of government above all depended was that of the Inquisition, which had not only altogether subjugated the Spanish nation, but did its utmost, as cases like those of Luis de Leon, 1571-76, and Archbishop Carranza show, to terrorize over the Spanish church. At the same time it persecuted with unabated zeal whatever unusual efforts of learning and scholarship provoked suspicion, such as those of Francisco de Sanchez, el Brosense, the learned editor of Early National Poetry, 1582. Moreover, the prohibitions of the index were rigorously enforced by Philip, the penalties of confiscation of property and even of death, being denounced against those who infringed them. Popular feeling, no doubt, continued to meet this system of repression more than halfway. The Lutheran Reformation, if it had penetrated into Spain at all, had left no traces behind it. 
the scriptures remained virtually unknown. Nor is the absence of independent theological speculation disproved by such exceptions as that of the Navarrese Servetus. The universities were falling into decay. Alcala appealed to the Pope against Salamanca, 1574, and Salamanca dwindled to half its former number of students, though an early edict of Philip II in 1558 had prohibited his subjects from resorting to foreign seats of learning. Inasmuch as the same condition of intellectual subjection prevailed in the reign of Philip III, 1598 to 1621, its impress is perceptible during a long period, even in those branches of literature which might seem farthest removed from theology and moral philosophy. Thus the Spanish theater was subjected to a rigorous censorship, 1587, and would have come to an end through the fiat of the dying Philip II, 1598, were it as easy to suppress as it is to control the established amusements of a people. But though the cooperation of the monarchy and the Inquisition could affect much, it could not sustain the spiritual enthusiasm to which, as a Spanish movement, the Counter-Reformation owed its origin. In a revival or uprising of this description, ideas must find personal representatives capable of satisfying the imagination of the people, and such were in this period the leading figures among the Spanish mystics, to the earlier of whom reference has already been made. Such, above all, was the holy woman whom the National Assembly of Spain saluted as a saint before she was canonized by Rome in 1622, and whom many generations after her death insurgent patriotism named Generalissima of the Armies of Spain. The chief historical significance of the reformatory movement begun by St. Teresa after all lies in its having in a large measure met the religious aspirations of the national mind, thus occupying the ground elsewhere seized by dogmatic dissent or sectarianism. Teresa de Ahumada, or as she afterwards called herself, Teresa de Jesus, 1515-82, was of ancient Castilian lineage and brought up in a love of chivalrous romance. She ran away to become a nun, but soon found the inside of the convent walls almost as worldly as the world without. Long years of poignant spiritual sufferings taught her the power and the rapture of prayer, and transformed without unhinging her mind. Towards the end of this period, her Jesuit confessor and other members of his society settled in her native town of Avila, encouraged her aspirations and accepted her accounts of her visions. Yet the fire of action was after all kindled in her by the earlier example of St. Peter of Alcantara, whose barefooted friars certainly suggested the foundation of the house of the discalced Carmelite nuns of Avila, 1562, the beginning of a reform which before Teresa's death extended over seventy-three and within about two centuries over more than seven hundred convents. She was assisted in her labors by kindred spirits, such as Juan of the Cross, the reformer of the male Carmelites, 
and Jerome Gratian of the Mother of God, whose appointment to the visitorship of all the Carmelites of Andalusia gave rise to the conflict between the Reformed and the unreformed sections of the order, which so greatly troubled St. Teresa's later years. She would not have been victorious in the end, when Gregory the Thirteenth severed the discalced from the mitigated Carmelites, 1580, had it not been for the support of King Philip. From the charges brought against her a few years earlier, by personal spite or folly and taken up by the Inquisition, she had easily cleared herself. The efforts of St. Teresa during the last fifteen years of her life, and their hard-won success, would go far to account for the influence exercised by her upon her contemporaries. But she had also found time to compose those prose manuals of devotion, more especially the interior castle, a kind of Catholic castle of Mansoul, which might almost be described as the popular textbooks of Spanish mysticism. Far removed alike from quietism and from pantheism, she is practical in the midst of her elevated piety, and a mild and milky human kindness percolates the intensity of her enthusiasm. Thus the ecstatic visionary who beheld the Saviour at her right hand may be numbered among those who, with clear eye and humble heart, have toiled to advance his cause among men, because the divine love of which she thought herself a chosen witness was the love that bears fruit in action. The spirit of unworldly and unselfish piety which animated much of the religious life of Spain in this period was likewise actively at work in the very center of the hierarchical system of the Church of Rome. The reforms of the Council of Trent proved far from ineffectual, and Rome herself, amidst all the dangers and disturbances through which that city passed, assumed and maintained an aspect befitting her religious pretensions. The Tridentine decrees, with their prohibitions of non-residence, pluralities, and other profitable abuses, could not, in the nature of the case, be generally popular at Rome. But they found loyal upholders in the popes, encouraged as they were in their attitude by the Spanish king, upon whom the three predecessors of Sixtus V consistently lent. The simplicity under Pius V, it might be called austerity, of the papal court in this period, contrasts with the easy luxury of earlier and the formal grandeur of later days. If the papal government under Gregory XIII pressed its feudal rights home with undue vigor, the Christian world at large was no longer aggrieved by a system of scandalous exactions. The College of Cardinals underwent a similar change, and not only in externals, as to which Cardinal Borromeo had set a salutary example. The restrictions imposed by the conciliar decrees combined with the large increase in the number of the members of the sacred college to diminish simultaneously the importance and the attractions of the dignity. And even under Clement VIII, 1592 to 1605, according to Bellarmine, the households of most of the cardinals were established on no extravagant footing. As a matter of course, the strength of the current varied according to the circumstances of the successive pontificates, 
and more especially according to the character of each successive pope. Pius V, 1566-72, to 72, carried into St. Peter's chair the traditions of the Order of St. Dominic. As Cardinal Ghislieri, he had held the office of Inquisitor-General at Rome during the two previous pontificates, and no break in the activity of the Inquisition ensued on his elevation. Under him, the Tridentine decrees became a working test, from which he allowed no prelate, priest, or monastic order to remain exempt. While the Inquisition was encouraged to call to account even the highest dignitaries of the most loyal churches, such as the Archbishop of Toledo. The Pope's religious zeal knew no bounds as to the duties which he imposed upon either himself or others, and such were the purity and holiness of the conduct of his life, both public and private, that his canonization in later days, 1712, admits of no cavil. He was the sworn foe of nepotism, and his bull at Monotnos, fifteen sixty seven prohibited for ever the alienation of any fief of the church, thus setting the example of the non possumus since steadily maintained. In his foreign policy, too, he was essentially consistent. In fifteen sixty eight he reissued with additions the bull in China Domini, which explicitly asserted the claims of the papacy to the supreme control of the states of the world. He congratulated Alva on the efficiency of his council of blood, and exhorted Charles the Ninth to pull up the Huguenot heresy by the very fibre of its roots. Fifteen sixty nine, he took part in the French wars with money and men, and while he spared no pains to animate the lukewarm loyalty of the Emperor Maximilian the Second towards the Church, he was ready to cut off from it a rebellious member like Queen Elizabeth in 1570, and to interest himself in the plots directed against her life. The supreme effort of the European policy was the formation of the league between Spain and Venice, which resulted in the naval victory of Lepanto, 1571, memorable to Catholic Christianity for all succeeding times, nor to do Pius V justice, barren of practical results by his fault. Gregory the Thirteenth, Bon Campagni, who followed Pius V in the papal chair, was chiefly occupied with the fearful excesses of the banditti, and with the pretensions of their good friends and patrons the baronage of the Roman states. Though unsuccessful in his attempt to put an end to the anarchy around him, he gravitated back in some measure towards that propitiatory system from which it was difficult for the temporal power to shake itself free, even when, as in his case, it no longer had dynastic aims in view. Yet, as he prudently refrained from seeking to maintain the full rigor of the discipline introduced by his predecessor into the life of church and laity, Rome, which under him largely increased in the number of its inhabitants, no longer felt doomed to decline, but could more easily reconcile itself with the reformatory movement. By the spirit of that movement, Gregory's ecclesiastical policy was essentially animated. Not only did he encourage lifelong labors like those of Philip of Neri, 1515-95, which clothed in a garb of humorous cheerfulness 
the heroism of self-sacrifice. But he neither concealed his belief nor spared expenditure to prove it, that the papacy ought to be a combative power. He hailed with open satisfaction the news of the massacre of St. Bartholomew in 1572 and sent forth the mission to England in 1580, of which no historian has as yet fully demonstrated the significance. He was active both in advancing the propagation of the faith in distant lands and in the endowment of churches and the establishment of colleges nearer home. His interest in the promotion of clerical education was more especially noteworthy, and herein thoroughly in accordance with the Jesuits, whom he specially favored. He helped to carry into effect one of the most important of the principles approved by the Council of Trent. Even the promulgation of the calendar which bears his name in 1582 would suffice to disprove his having been the Papa Negativus, the Pope of mere intentions, as which he was derided by Roman wit. End of section 13